And Steve read that um, verse this morning from Isaiah 61. I was blown away because it's the one verse I couldn't fit into my talk because um, I had too many other things to say. And so I sort of, sort of deleted it or left it to the bottom. But anyway, it kind of sums up everything that I want to talk about today. And there's one particular uh, verse in there. You know, it talks about the Spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor and bind up the brokenhearted. And as you work your way down, it says that they, as in those who have been captive and are now being freed, those who have been brokenhearted and are now being uh, bound up, as it were, those who have been mourning and are now being comforted, they will be the ones who are called oaks of righteousness. And it says in verse 4, they will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, restore the places. And today I want to talk about restoration and what the Bible says about restoration. We are um, into, just into a series, this is the third week in a series called Beyond Revival. Now the word revival can be defined as a restoration to life, a restoration of consciousness. Within the wider church, the word revival has been used over the centuries to describe significant moves of God or significant awakenings that have happened, times when the power of God seems to have manifest in such a way that people have sat up and taken notice, that, that many, many people have turned to God. People who had no background with Jesus before, people who did not go to church. In the Welsh revival of 1904, it says the pubs were emptied and the churches were filled. Revival is a place where those who are spiritually dead come to life. And it's a word which merits some exploration because truthfully, um, in our world anyway, I notice that revival, this word is banded around and I'm not sure that we often really, really fully understand what we mean when we say it. And as Paul said last week and shared last week, there are things that would happen that some people would call revival that I just wouldn't call revival. Not, if you're, not, even, not even if you're comparing it to history let alone the Bible. They don't match up to what church history we call revival. The word revival itself isn't in the Bible, but the concept is throughout the Bible. Right across the Old Testament where Paul looked last week when he talked about Nineveh and the story of Jonah and how that town was completely changed from being a completely pagan city where, um, where all sorts of horrendous things went on to being from top to bottom a city of people transformed and renewed by God and revived by God. And then we looked, um, the week before I looked at Acts 2, at Pentecost, the first kind of perhaps recorded um, revival in the, word, in, in the way that we would use it. And so we've called this series Beyond Revival, and we highlighted four specific concepts that I think are very helpful for us when we think about this. I'm not getting anywhere with that. Can you shove it on for me? Ah, oh, there we go. Thank you. Um, when we highlight four specific concepts that will much he- better help us understand and explain what revival is, what God's big story for the world is. You see, God is really for revival. He longs to pour out his spirit on his people. He longs to see his power moving. He longs to see people turn to him. That's his whole purpose. And as Paul said last week, he can do that and he can do that when he chooses. And he can do it when the conditions are right. And Paul was saying last week, he used a brilliant analogy about a lightning rod. And about how, you know, lightning can strike anywhere, but it's more likely to strike in certain conditions and certain places. And Paul, uh, you know, God's heart is to pour out his spirit on us. But I think his heart is to go further than that. 
I think God's heart is to go further than revival. Revival sounds like an amazing thing. Ever since I've grown up in the church, I've heard people saying, oh, when revival comes, and we've been hoping for revival, and we've been praying for revival, and we think revival's going to happen. I think God wants to go further than that. You see, I really, don't get me wrong, I so desperately want to see God move. But I don't think he wants to stop at revival. Now, if, you, if you're here today and you wouldn't call yourself a believer, obviously you're, you're very, very welcome. I hope this church, sorry, I hope this, I hope this church is welcoming. That's not what I meant to say. I hope this talk helps you better understand the big picture of the Bible and what it is that Christians are actually, actually supposed to be aiming for when we follow Jesus. Now, if any of what I'm talking about doesn't make sense, come and chat to me afterwards. I'd love to take this further. But these are four words, renewal, revival, reformation, restoration. You could sum that up with this This word, transformation. Transformation. We've sung this morning, haven't we? You restore every heart that's broken. We sang that in our worship this morning. By the way, I don't know if you ever notice, hopefully you're not watching, anybody who's sitting near me at the front. Sometimes what happens is I plan these talks and then we sing a line in our worship and I think, oh, that's what I'm talking about. And I mainly just go and make a note so that I can mention it. I'm not just texting or going on Facebook or something. I go, oh, restore, restore. That's interesting. We've sung that this morning. And I just want to draw our attention to the fact you restore every heart that's broken. Let me just briefly summarize these first two and then we're going to get into the, the last two. Pretty much myself, um, two weeks ago, and Paul last week have covered this ground of renewal and revival. And um, renewal, there have been times in history, perhaps over the past 40 years, when the Spirit of God has moved powerfully in a church community. We know of some because they kind of get famous. You know, it, but it's in a way that believers just haven't experienced. Often it's accompanied by physical manifestations of God, miracles and healing. It's always accompanied by a renewed passion for God, for his presence and for his word. And when this starts to happen on a regular basis, there is a real temptation to call that revival. Actually, in fact, renewal is a much better and more accurate word. It's a word that describes something that regularly happens, actually, in the lives of individuals and in the lives of a church community. My prayer is that we've come to church this morning and we go away feeling renewed. I certainly do. Most Sundays when I come. No, all Sundays when I come. No, whatever. Um, my prayer is that we all experience a measure of God's power when we gather. We don't take that for granted, but we do welcome it. So renewal for me is a brilliant word to describe the people of God doing what it is that they're supposed to do. Just continually meeting with him, being renewed, remembering what they're here for, coming together as a Christian community. We connect with God, we enjoy his presence, and then we're empowered to go and do something else, which is to live out our lives as scattered servants, to get out into our workplaces and homes and colleges and communities. So that's the word renewal. When we get to revival, the word revival for me is a much better definition of what happens when that power of God that's manifest here on a Sunday morning actually just can't be contained in the church building anymore. When it breaks out of the church and onto the streets or into the cathedral green maybe, I don't know. When the power of God starts moving in communities, that's when we can call this thing revival. I heard somebody say revival is messy. And it's wonderful. It can't be controlled. And Paul last week said, didn't he, that the minute we try and control revival, that's when it goes away. The minute we try and put a label on it, you know, the minute we try and sort of, in our day and age, I would be, perhaps I'm being slightly controversial, the minute we start to feature it on God TV, you know, 
that's when we have to, I have to just wonder, okay, well, what's going on here? We're trying to sort of, uh, bless them, sorry, I don't have anything against God TV. I'm just, that, that thing about, you know, putting people and saying, the revival's happening because of you. And that's not the truth. The revival's happening because of God. And the minute we start kind of putting people, any people, good people, I'm sure that they didn't ask for that role. Anyway, I'm getting off on the, getting off the point. So two weeks ago, I highlighted, with the help of um, a guy called Arthur Wallace, who some of you will have known or have heard speak, um, some of the key hallmarks of revival. You can listen to that. And last week, Paul played a clip of Duncan Campbell from the Hebrides revival, talking with a very broad Scottish accent and a fantastic bit of Scottish folk music going on underneath it. Um, In the late 40s, he said this, in revival, every service is an inquiry room. The road and the hillside become sacred spots to many when the winds of God blow. Revival is the going of God among his people and an awareness of God laying hold of the community. And there are lessons we can learn from that. And revival's vital and it's important. And let me say this again, just to underline it and make sure it's absolutely clear. Experiencing the presence of God is a profound, wonderful, incredible and life-changing thing. I love it. I welcome it. I pray for it in my own life and I pray for it, hopefully, with anybody I come across. You know, in my job, people come to me and say, I've got this problem and I've got that problem. And I try and make sure that, yes, we'll have a chat, but I try and make sure that every time we leave, we pray. And I say, now, it's not about me. This is about your presence, God. Send your presence. Because I can't change people. God can change people. But there's more. There's more. And God, uh, God? Paul encouraged us to push into that. And so I want to talk a little bit about reformation and restoration and what that looks like. Reformation literally means... When things are made new, when they're reformed, when they're reshaped, reformed. Things get bent out of shape, and reformation is the process of reforming them. It says in Revelation 21, behold, I am making all things new. And God is in the business of reforming and reshaping the individuals and communities. You know, when we experience a measure of physical healing... God is literally reshaping us, reforming us, recreating us. How many of you have, been, have experienced some kind of physical healing that you would attribute to the Holy Spirit? You are being made new. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Isn't that wonderful that God is in the business of reforming us? When our emotional lives are put back together and we learn to think differently about ourselves, We are being reformed. When we become more like Jesus and we reflect more of his values and his character, we mature in character, we are being reformed. My personal story, I feel like I've been being reformed by God all my life. Physically, I'm still working on it. But I can think particularly of three significant points of emotional and spiritual Emotional healing and character maturity that I'll share with you. The first one happened when I was um, really drifting and in quite a mess just after finishing uh, my degree, university degree. Um, I, wasn't, I hadn't really connected with anybody spiritually. I hadn't really, really connected with the church. Although I loved God and I, I was okay with God, I didn't really feel at home anywhere. And God brought me very, quite dramatically to a, a particular community, a small, a small group of people um, that ultimately became the Vineyard Church in Birmingham. But they weren't that at the time. They were just a bunch of people. Joe 
came one time. She thought they were all crazy. She'd never go back again. Um, but just people who were meeting actually in a hotel room and in, people, in some houses. And I felt like God connected me there. He, it felt like coming home. And I felt suddenly, suddenly I felt safe. And in a place where I could share and where I could grow. And that was just a part of my reforming story. Later um, on, much later on, I came to a realisation quite dramatically over a period of a few weeks and months, that God was, God was my father, my perfect father, and he was the one, probably the only one, but actually the only one who could fill the emotional gaps and the spiritual gaps that my own dad had left. Now, my dad was a great guy, but he wasn't perfect. And it took me till I was in my mid-30s to realise the effects of that on my life and the fact that God would be the father that my dad couldn't have been. And that was a significant point of reforming for me. And then over the past five years, coming down here to Winchester and stepping into the calling of leadership has been massively reshaping for both Joe and I. I have learned and I'm learning that I can only live up to what God has called me to do if I walk in the spiritual authority he's given me. I have to stand up straight into who God's told me to be. And I can only do that by humbling myself before him and, and getting more of him in my life. And those are just three particular examples, but actually throughout my whole life, I feel like I have been being reshaped and reformed. And many of you will have similar stories. Maybe you can think of significant points where, you know, something, some part of our lives has been bent out of shape. For whatever reason, maybe by our actions, maybe by other people's actions. And God has kind of brought us through. You see, 2 Corinthians 5 says, if anyone is in Christ, then the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. We are new, we're made new. And we are reformed and made new so that society can be reformed and made new. So that our communities can be reformed and our culture can be reformed. I don't know if you've noticed recently, but our culture is pretty desperate for answers. Politically, emotionally, psychologically, financially, economically. I mean, our culture is just completely messed up and looking for answers and looking for hope. Our friends and our colleagues and our neighbours are looking for answers. Some of them may actually articulate that and others may not. People are looking for answers. Just stop and think for a minute. Where in your community can you see problems that need, that need addressing? They might be emotional ones. They might be physical, practical ones. Can you think of them? Just think about where you live, the people you hang out with. Where are the problems? I'm not going to ask you what they are, but it probably doesn't take very long to think about what they are, does it? If you stop and think. You see, reformation is what happens when the power of God, through the actions of his reformed people, start affecting the social and the economic and the political institutions and structures in communities. When the power of God impacts his people and they take a look around themselves and say, do you know what? Something needs to change here. There's something that's not right over here. There's a lack of hope here. What are God's dreams for our city and for our communities? What are they? Do you know what they are? Have you asked him? I had a great story. Um, some of you will know of the 24-7 prayer team. A guy called Pete Gregg leads this movement. It's an amazing thing. Um, there's a, there's a part of that called 24-7 Ibiza. You know, you know Ibiza? It's a lovely, beautiful island in the Mediterranean. 
and it's also the clubbing capital of Europe. And the 24-7 team initially just had this vision to go to Ibiza and dance the night away. No, and to, um, and to save... To, this, these are the words that Pete Gregg used when I heard him talk about this. To save people from some kind of hell or Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the word he used. That was what the vision was. So they go there, they start taking teams over there. They start hanging about for the summer in Ibiza. And they start trying to help people and reach out to clubbers. He said it didn't take long before they realised that in order to earn any kind of credibility and respect, they would need to start addressing some of the bigger issues that were going on over there in that culture. So one of the things was literally that they started to provide um, an ambulance to take people home who were too drunk and too sick to get home themselves. People who were just out and about in the streets and, and couldn't move. I've heard that that ambulance is actually called the sick bus. Yep, nice. And who, who staffs it? It's the 24-7 Ibiza team. Okay? They started to do beach cleaning because half of the, they said to the, 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 um, the sort of local council and the mayor, we're here to help. The mayor said, well, do you think you could help us do something with these beaches? Just don't go there too much, but use your imagination to think what might be on the beaches of Ibiza. And then think about how those guys decided that the only way to, the thing that God was asking them to do was to go and clean the beaches so that they could be used, so that people could, so you know, people can go on there for the needles and all the other stuff that was going on there. And then they made contact with some North African illegal prostitutes. And they reached out to them and these prostitutes came. And, they, and he said every day they would pray for salvation. And then every night they'd have to go back to the lifestyle that they were trapped in. What did salvation, that was his word, but I would use the word, what did revival or reformation or restoration look like for those ladies, those girls? Ultimately, it meant that they needed to act, that the team needed to act practically to get these girls away from their pimps, to smuggle them off the island, to find them a safe house and a new job so that they could send the money back home, which is why they were there in the first place, mainly for economic reasons. Suddenly, revival doesn't become just moving in the power of God. It becomes something that affects social and political and cultural structures. You know, we've got a history of that in our own country. Think about William Wilberforce. Think about what's going on now with modern-day slavery. You know, there's, there's all sorts of um, organizations working on modern-day slavery. One of the one of the guys who started, the guy who started Stop the Traffic, and you can, you know, he's been a controversial figure in the last few years, um, and I don't agree with everything he said, but Steve Chalk has done an amazing thing in starting an organisation called Stop the Traffic in order to try and campaign against slavery. Another guy that we know that isn't so well known as Steve Chalk is a guy called Andrew Wallace, who did for many years lead the Bristol Vineyard, the Bristol Vineyard Church. He handed that church over four or five, about four years ago because he developed... Um, another organisation called Unseen, which is a, 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 a trafficking, an anti-trafficking um, charity. And not only has he done that, but Andrew chaired the parliamentary, 2013 parliamentary report. He was the only non-member of parliament invited into that meeting, um, which led to uh, the modern slavery bill, which went through parliament the last year or so. So reformation is about moving from saving to shaping moving from rescuing to redeeming. And when the power of God impacts the people of God and the people of God start to look around, 
They start to act to bring about God's power and his presence and his values. I wonder what some of the dreams are that God has given you for your city and your communities. But Reformation is only the start, because it doesn't even end there. Because the end goal of all of this is restoration. And restoration can be defined in the dictionary as the action of returning something to its former owner. Returning something to its former place. Returning something to its former condition. We might use the word restoration in this way. We might say that somebody received the restoration of their sight. Or that a building was being restored to its original state. Or that a monarch or a head of government was being restored to their power. See, God is in the business of ultimate, global, cosmic restoration. The Bible teaches there will be a time when everything and everyone will be restored to the fullness of what God's designed us to be. Not just hearts returning to Jesus, but families restored, marriages restored, children and parents reconciled, health restored, stability restored, communities restored where there's been division and brokenness, peace restored where there's been conflict, creation restored where it's been trashed as a result of greed and selfishness. And restoration is where every single person becomes what it is that they were originally designed for and where the world ultimately becomes what God originally designed it for. Our vision, it's in our vision statement, is that we believe that God wants to rewrite the story of our city and restore hope and bring life to individuals and institutions. This isn't just some good idea that the staff team came up with on a brainstorming day. This is God's ultimate end goal. On the back of your sheet, you have five pictures from the Bible. I'm not going to have time to do these much justice. Let me say, overarching, the Bible tells a very big and consistent story about hope and restoration. You can read that bit for yourself. The creation of the world, the conflict with evil, and God's plan for redemption. Let me read you a quote by Tom Wright. Redemption, in other words, what Jesus has done for us on the cross, redemption is not simply making creation a bit better, as the optimistic evolutionist would try to suggest, nor is it rescuing spirits and souls from an evil material world, as the Gnostic would want to say. It is the remaking of creation, having dealt with the evil which is defacing and distorting it. This quote isn't on your sheet. This is one I'm reading to you. God's plan is to remake creation. He made it perfectly in the first place, Then there's the problem of evil and the world that we're living in. Then there's Jesus and his death and resurrection on the cross. And there are five little pictures here. And I can't do more than really just flag them up. So I'm not going to go in depth on the, on the, on the Bible passages that are there. You can do that for yourself. I'm trying to present an overview. If you want to read more about this, there's a brilliant book called Surprise by Hope by Tom Wright. Do you know, I read something that, um, Bill Johnson, who's the, uh, who's the leader of the Bethel Bethel Church. You know, he has a lot to say on this subject. And uh, Tom Wright, who's an incredible British theologian, Anglican, bishop, 
He also has a lot to say on this. I don't think anybody's actually brought them together. They're coming from very different standpoints, but they're both saying pretty much the same thing. That this is about heaven on earth. Now, Tom Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, kind of covers this in a, it kind of goes a lot wider than what I want to talk about today. It's talking about death and resurrection and life and what happens after we die and what hope we have. But just read with me. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll just read and just look at, just glance at two or three of these pictures. And these are pictures that the Bible gives, that Paul teaches to provide hope, transformation, and just to remind us that ultimately, restoration is the heart of God. I want to get to verse 20, but by giving, just to give us a context, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2. So if you've got 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to read 1 and 2, then I'm going to read 12 and 13, and then I'm going to go to verse 20. Now, brothers and sisters, this is verse 1, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to remind you of the gospel Paul saying, I preach to you, which you received and on which, on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. Jump ahead to verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then jump ahead to verse 20, and this is the picture that I want to kind of, this, this picture of first use. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, Paul says, for the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then, when he comes, who belong to him. Now Paul is writing about the resurrection. Through the whole of this passage, it's explaining the meaning of Jesus' resurrection and unpacking it. He introduced the concept, and the first picture he uses is an agricultural picture, the picture of first fruits of the harvest. Now, first fruits means, in Jewish terms, it means the tithe or the offering that's brought in the first part of the harvest that's been gleaned. So literally, they would, they would uh, harvest the barley and they would bring the first and best part and they would bring it to the temple and they would offer it as a sacrifice to God. Now, it happened that the harvest of the barley happened on the feast of Passover, Pesach, Passover. And then the harvest would continue through the next few weeks. So the first fruits is just the preemptive, the preemptive strike, as it were. It's the promise of more to come. The actual harvest would then continue, and there would be an abundance of harvest. And so the first fruits offering was a really important and significant blessing, acknowledging that this is God has blessed us. And by using this image, Paul is basically teaching them that look. The resurrection of Jesus is just the first fruits of the harvest. There is more resurrection to come. There is abundantly more resurrection to come. The whole of the life of God for all of us, for everyone. That's what's coming here. It's interesting as well. Tom Wright doesn't say this. I might be making a leap of faith on my own here, but I noticed this, that the resurrection of Jesus falls on Passover, which is, in Jewish terms, the first fruits of the barley harvest, and 50 days later is Pentecost, 
It literally, Pentecost means 50 days, 50 days later. And Pentecost is the first fruits of the wheat harvest. And that's how it works in the Jewish calendar. That's how it worked then in the agricultural days. And I'm just wondering, gosh, if there's a first fruits, Jesus' death and resurrection that promises ultimate life. And then the Holy Spirit comes as the first fruits of the mechanism by which God can impact the world. What does that say about revivals and, and outpourings of God that have come since? To me, it means that there's an abundant, an abundant blessing waiting to happen. An abundant blessing waiting to happen. Now, the truth is I don't have time to look into all these things, so I'm going to jump right down to number five. I'm going to leave you guys to, um, to look up the rest on your own. Paul also uses the picture of a, of a battle where Jesus has won every, won every battle and, and have subdued every power. He uses the picture of citizens of heaven colonizing the earth, and he uses a picture of new birth. And because I... Oh, somebody's done it for me. Thank you. I did look up lovely pictures this morning. But just look at Revelation chapter 21, and just open your Bible there if you've got it, which is right at the end. This is almost the last couple of chapters of the whole Bible. I'm just going to read the first three verses for now. It says, this is Revelation 21. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. We've sung this as well this morning, haven't we? We've sung this song this morning. In fact, that song's called Revelation Song, isn't it? The one we sang earlier. I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now where? In heaven? No. God's dwelling place is where? Among the people. And he will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. You see, at the end of everything, we ain't going to heaven. Heaven's coming to us. Heaven is coming to earth. Now, I confess I've got a lot more thinking to do about what this means after I die. And that I haven't completely finished reading this book, but it's fantastic. Maybe that's another sermon series for another time, because it's, it's fascinating stuff. But for me, this is the greatest image of new creation, of restoration, of cosmic renewal. There are so many worldviews, and even Christian theologies, that see the goal as separation between God and the world. You know, when we get to heaven, we'll leave this redundant old place and we'll get to a beautiful place and we'll be there and we'll be loving, hanging out with God. Has anybody been taught something like that in their life? Because I have. I'm struggling to find it in the Bible. I'm struggling to find it. I, I even found it. It reminded me of this old song. You might know this song. It's an old, really old gospel song from the early 20th century. I've heard at least two recordings of it, but apparently it's the most recorded song. It's called I'll Fly Away. Do you know that? Tell you what, I'll sing it to you. I've got a great record of Johnny Cash singing this, by the way. It goes, um, Some bright morning when this life is over. I'll, all the musicians among you have started doing this. I'll fly away. 
to that home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. And he goes, I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away in the morning when I die. Hallelujah, by and by. Oh, I'll fly away. And then there's a whole bunch of verses when the shadows of this life have gone, like a bird from these prison walls I'll fly. This whole idea of escaping death. Now, of course, the roots of that song come out of um, slavery. And, and that's totally understandable. I can completely understand how people would be singing that kind of song. It's clearly rooted in hardship. It's understandable that a theology might accidentally develop out of that, but I don't think it's very helpful for us. Because it doesn't really reflect ultimately what the New Testament, what the Bible says about hope. And what the Bible says is, heaven is coming here. Here in Revelation 21 is the evidence that there is no sacred secular divide. That God's end goal is unity with the earth, not separation. And it echoes 1 Corinthians that we talked about and Philippians 3, which I didn't have time to look at. It's a marriage of heaven and earth once and for all. Tom Wright says this, the living God will dwell with and among all his people filling the city with his life and love and pouring out grace and healing in the river of life that flows from the city out to the nations. There's a promise for Tent on the Green. And everything else that, that, that God is doing through each of us as scattered servants. Let me say that again. The living God will dwell with and among all his people, filling the city with his life and his love and pouring out grace and healing in the river of life that flows from the city out to the nations that God will dwell with us, his people. Does this get you excited? It gets me excited, and it's in the Bible. Now, in two weeks' time, we're gonna, next week, as I said, we're doing Tent on the Green. We won't be here. We'll be doing this stuff. And in two weeks' time, Paul's going to pick this theme up and talk a bit more practically about what that looks like, about how we get involved in transformation with God. He's going to use some material from Ed Silvoso and tell some stories about cities all over the world where transformation is happening. But I just wanted to take a moment to say this stuff is in the Bible, people. Okay? It's in the Bible. And scholars who are much cleverer than I have picked this out and said, you know what? It's there. I wouldn't call Tom Wright a raving charismatic. Okay? I wouldn't call him a Pentecostal. He's very much an Anglican. (laughs) But here he is saying, look, in the Bible, it says that God is going to bring about a restoration that ultimately our hope comes from God's restoration. It's gone. Have I got any more? Just put the last one on for me, will you? Oh, yeah, there you go. I showed you this last week. When I look up restoration on Google, this is what comes up. And if you, it's, perhaps it's hard to see, but basically it's pictures of old photographs that have been cleaned up and restored to how they should be. And God is in the business of restoration. Now, there's a kingdom tension in there because... For some of us, we aren't quite as restored as we'd like to be. But that is his end goal. And revival is simply one of the strategic steps on the way to that end goal of restoration. So let's pray for revival, yes. Let's work for it, yes. Let's do all the things that Paul asked us to do, which was to check out holiness and to, to get on our knees before God. But let's also know that there's a bigger story at work here. There's a bigger story at work here. We are being restored. And I've put that quote down there for you. Actually, there's one more before that. One more quote. 
Um, it says, what am I proposing? This is Tom Wright. What am I proposing? What I am proposing through this whole chapter that I haven't been able to go into, haven't had time to go into. What I'm proposing, he says, is that the New Testament image of the future hope of the whole cosmos, grounded in the resurrection of Jesus, gives us coherent a picture as we need or could have of the future that is promised to the whole world. A future which, under the sovereign and wise rule of creator God, decay and death will be done away. And as a new creation born to which the present one will stand like a mother to a child. And then he puts that quote just a bit further down, which I've put in the bottom of your sheet. What creation needs is not the abandonment on one hand or evolution on the other, but actually redemption and renewal. And this is both promised and guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. This is what the world is waiting for. Restoration is our goal. One more. He's going to make all things new. Why don't we stand together?